The Humanist Being presents When Humanists Attack. Humanists go on the proactive and have their say. My name is Roger Kimmel-Smith, and I'm very excited to introduce our special guest on this edition of When Humanists Attack, New York State Assembly Member Anna Kellis. Dr. Anna Kellis represents all of Tompkins County, including the city of Ithaca, and five townships in Cortland County, including the city of Cortland. In 2020, she defeated five of her fellow Democrats in a contested primary, then won in November, to replace long-serving legislator Barbara Lifton in the lower house. And in 2022, she ran unopposed for a second term. Among the biggest accomplishments of her first term in Albany is a bill imposing a two-year moratorium on the conversion of decommissioned power plants for the purposes of -of proof-of-work cryptocurrency mining. This bill also mandates an environmental and climate impact study on the energy-intensive crypto mining industry throughout the state. Governor Kathy Hochul signed the bill in December, despite the vocal opposition of New York City Mayor Eric Adams and others. Anna can also claim a certain amount of credit for saving a parcel of this green earth from likely development. 470 acres of wooded Cayuga Lakefront, known as the Bell Station, which NYSEG, New York State Electric and Gas, was planning to auction, but after the advocacy of Anna and others decided instead to sell to the Finger Lakes Land Trust in 2022. Before her election to state office, Anna Kellis served in the Tompkins County Legislature from 2015 to 2020. She has a Ph.D. in nutritional epidemiology and has taught at Cornell and Ithaca College. Anna Kellis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. First question. So here we are. It's the year 2023 on this planet. And you have begun your your second term as a state legislator in Albany. Uh, I've caught you smack dab in the middle of the uh, the hectic budget season. Seems like the busiest time in Albany. I just wanted to ask you to to step back from all that and and tell me how you're feeling these days about the the planet and the state of the human enterprise and that sort of thing? That's big, bold questions. Um, You know, I would say that uh, if you're coming at it from the climate change perspective, um, I tell people this, uh, whether or not humans choose to survive, I would rather be on the ship fighting as it sinks than not on the ship at all. And I mean that in the context of being in the government. Um, anybody who's listening to this probably knows that I am very passionate about environmental issues. And a lot of the work I do is focused on environmental issues. Uh, I do believe that we have run out of time. Um, and by that, I mean that there are already irreparable damages caused by human, uh, behavior. Yeah. And so, uh, we are now evaluating scientifically again, people who know me know that, um, I don't come to politics by way of um politics itself i come to politics by way of science um as a a former professor sure Mm -hmm. so i 
tend to focus on um, science and data and facts. Um, and we are in the process, of course, of looking at uh, not what um, what we can avoid, meaning that we can avoid everything, but um, what is now unavoidable and uh, and what can we still avoid if we take pretty significant bold actions. Um, so, yeah, I would say that would be my answer as far as where we as a species are and where the planet is with respect to our engagement with it. Yeah, I, you know, so many people don't seem to be so clear eyed and honest about it. I'm thinking myself about, you know, how can we shrink the human footprint, uh, you know, in real terms over the coming half century or century and just get the species to stop just expropriating everything on the planet to grow this unsustainable greed, you know, but government, you know, historically has just helped facilitate all this expropriation, right? So can we really expect governments to put meaningful restraints on growth? How does this, how does this become possible? Well, you know, there's, there's the whole conversation about growth, but then there's also the conversation about, um, our current uh, um, behaviors and habits and uh, electricity consumption in particular, mm-hmm. and whether or not, you know, we are reducing our electricity consumption, whether we are, are converting it all to renewable energy infrastructure, whether that renewable energy infrastructure is produced in any way sustainably and, uh, and the materials are produced for longevity. I mean, there's so many questions in that context. I can say in New York, we do have one of the most progressive climate uh, laws in the country and in the world. The Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which will require that we um, are uh, net neutral on our energy production and consumption uh, by 2050. We have a deadline by 2030. uh, That's, you know, 40 percent, 50 percent. Um, which we are working towards. There are some of us that believe that we're not moving fast enough, but um, you know that that is something that I would say we're aggressively working towards. There's other things though that we need to. I mean, there's endless things that we need to do, um, like for example, protecting our water, like for example, addressing the fact that we have massive harmful algal blooms increasing, and we have significant amount of PFAS and PFO way forever chemicals in our water sources and that almost every human particularly in the developed world has uh, a sort of a a a slew of different um, PFAS and POAs in our body in our bloodstream in our cells already Um, some really interesting data just came out about the uh, the cognitive impacts as well as the um, long-term uh, uh, cardiovascular disease and cancer risks of having so much of this in our bodies. So there's, of course, water. And we only have like 4%, I'm sorry, 0.4%, as far as I understand, of all water on the planet is fresh water. And yeah. less than 1% of that is accessible to humans, meaning it's not frozen and it's... Um, surface water or at least aquifers um so if we look at like new york for example we have all the finger lakes and we have the great lakes it's a significant portion of the world's uh fresh surface water um and we have more harmful algal bloom outbreaks than we've ever had before continuously escalating 
we have uh, skyrocketing amounts of uh, PCBs, PFOAs, PFA, um, PFAS, and PFOAs in our water. So we have some serious work to do with respect to protecting our natural resources. And then we look at waste. Um, you know, we have Seneca Meadows. It has a, we have a, it's, it's a, a landfill that is 35 building stories tall. Uh, I'm sorry, 28 building stories tall. And uh, this Texas oil, Texas uh, uh, company has just requested to extend the date in which they are uh, uh, asked to close. Right now it should be, I think by 2024, and they want an additional 15 years, um, which would add about another seven stories to equal about 35 building stories of trash uh, that are stored in the landfill just north of uh, Seneca Lake. Um, so of course you can imagine what impact that has on groundwater. Mm -hmm. So being honest, we have some major issues we need to address. At least we're having the conversation. I appreciate that we're having the conversation. Um, I'm putting, I'm carrying a bunch of bills to try and address some of those, but um, I don't, I don't think as of yet we're moving fast enough. Um, but I am thankful that there are way more people in the legislature that get it and care about it and are fighting for it than I would have thought prior to coming into state government, which is extremely refreshing. Yeah, well, it's, and it's good to hear you say it. Uh, I'd like to hear more about your background and backstory because, you know, I mean, I, I met you before you decided to run for office. You know, we met through friends in Ithaca and I knew you were someone politically engaged on the local level. So I'd like to hear you talk about your life, you know, from early on up to the point we met, which would include your PhD work in nutritional epidemiology and your, your work in Ecuador and your work in nutrition. Mm. Um, well, I grew up here. Uh, I grew up um, in Trumansburg, actually, on a dirt road. My dad was the dentist. My mom worked at Cornell. So I'm a local through and through. Um, they were part of a, a sort of philosophic, spiritual community called Wisdom's Goldenrod that was very highly um, connected to uh, the Dalai Lama and um, efforts to make sure that uh, Tibetans were safe in the 60s and 70s. So did, I had a very did, interesting did I, childhood. Did I hear you right? Wisdom's Goldenrod? Uh-huh. Oh, it's sort of a, a philosophic center of Eastern Eastern philosophy, um, study, studies of Eastern philosophy. It's on Seneca Lake, actually. Um, but, you know, highly intellectual, um, you know, people studying Plotinus and uh, Socrates. And so Eastern and Western philosophy, right, um, mm -hmm. to uh, the... Um, to, to math even, right? Like the philosophy of, of matter and reality through, you know, in a study of Euclid's elements, right? It was, they were intellectuals. They were studying kind of everything across the board, um, which is my, which was my childhood. So I, I think it definitely colored the way that uh, my, my mind works. Um, having conversations about what is, your, what is the ego? What is the over self? How are you self-identifying with your identity? Um, if you, if that makes sense. Definitely. Uh, question was, of self uh, and uh, Atman, it, Of course, was right. 
So an odd background I may be for a um no it, a it, it actually in politics. Makes, makes me understand, you know, on a perhaps more pragmatic level why we have uh so much in common in how we think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, so I went from that to uh, SUNY Binghamton. So that was like high school here, SUNY Binghamton, where I studied uh, um, biology and environmental studies. I had a professor who who died last year, which was um, deeply sad to me. Uh, his name was as Richard Andrews, stunning mm-hmm. human being, um, cantankerous and funny and uh, brilliant studied sphagnum moss but he uh, took students every year with another faculty uh, we had a tropical ecology class uh, and we would go to um, Costa Rica to study the different ecosystems and the impact of climate change on the ecosystems so that we could understand not just temperate zone but you know the tropics he had another class on several classes on temperate zone ecologies as well so he wasn't uh, simply on the tropics, but a globalist in as far as his uh, his work in the environment. And I remember him coming into the first day of class like Indiana Jones. I mean, he was just he was like sparkly eyed and 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 passionate about it. And I went in as uh, thinking I'd be a theater major. And like that day is when sort of my life shifted because mm-hmm. uh, I knew I cared about the environment. I'd cared about my entire life, but. I don't know. There was some, everybody has the, um, not everybody, but there are a lot of people who have stories about the, a person or a moment that changed their lives. And that was certainly one that like redirected. And when I added uh, a focus of biochemistry and nutrition and, bi- and biology, um, because I had had a lot of health issues growing up, my father did. Turns out we all have a, a, a genetic. Um, autoimmune disease that's uh, certainly very impactful in all of our lives. But even at that time, I was very driven to find answers. So I had two two worlds that I was walking in, human health, planet health. If you look at my life, everything I have done has been the interface between human health and planet health. Mm-hmm. Um, from, you know, being a guide in the Amazon after doing a couple of years of um, you know, independent study and research on nutrition in a um, very impoverished area of Ecuador. I ended up going back and teaching high school biology and then went back and was a a guide in the the Amazon. Again, back and forth, nutrition, uh, nutrition environment, Uh, and came back to the United States only uh, to do a PhD uh, at UNC Chapel Hill in, in nutrition, but it was nutritional epidemiology. So very heavy um, epidemiology focus and international yeah. nutrition in, in developing countries. So so how nutrition and diet tie into disease and wellness on the on the level of whole populations? Correct, correct. But I was specifically looking at the change over time in urbanicity and affluence of a built so the change in the built environment and sort of the jobs people have access to um the the what existed in their environment with respect to the foods they had access to the um passive forms of entertainment and uh you know all of those things shifted over time Mm -hmm. what is the impact on obesity uh rates physical activity rates um health overall in a developing country context 
um, which, you know, we can sort of watch real time what the impact of a Western culture is on in a developing country context, which was um, pretty fascinating experience. Mm -hmm. And then moved on to be the dean of a school of nutrition. I ran a, a nonprofit, an environmental nonprofit, helping businesses uh, transition to a triple bottom line of people, planet, profit. Um, did a lot of advocacy and activism work for the American Nutrition Association. I built a nutritionadvocacy.org website to help um, to help people who are in the nutrition world understand what they where they could practice in the United States and where um, sort of the industrial food complex had gotten a stronghold on um, you know what where uh, you know, what certifications would be needed in what state and um, where people could practice and what people could practice. So I did a lot of work on that for years and then shifted back into the environment locally here in Ithaca when I, you know, was living here after my uh -huh. PhD. So it's a very windy road. Right, right. It's a very windy but, road. But you answered my question. You brought us to the point where we met, which was where you met me, oh, right? Advocacy and activism. But I guess you know, in that story, it was just shortly before you uh, had the idea of politics, you know, and, and yeah, you well, had the talent for it, you know, on the retail I, level. I, I mean, not just from the evidence I, of, of of your electoral record, but you know, in your first campaign, I spent an hour with you knocking on doors in Ithaca and. and you know, talking to your neighbors. And I was deeply impressed by your just your doorstep manner, you know, how you connect mm. with people. You know, plus it's clear yeah. you're, you're a very hard worker, you know, uh, that just seems to be your your habit and and you know, a PhD researcher. So you ha you have a lot to yeah. contribute, I suppose. How do you how do you I feel it? like uh, I have a brain that moves really fast. Um, I have filled it with a lot and I feel like I have a responsibility to, to use it in a way that's helpful. Maybe it, that puts a lot on my shoulders, but it's just the way it feels to me. Maybe it's, um, the way that I would like to both live and, and die, um, knowing I was fully invested, uh, if that makes any sense. Well, sure. Um, that comment you made at the beginning about being on the ship, you know? <laughs> yeah that's, yeah that's what yeah I mean I remember two two things that one my mother said and and one I actually there's been a, a couple things that people have said to me in my life that have been really important my mom said to me once Anna it's it's arrogant to think it's arrogant to think that you can dictate to the world how it chooses to receive you and it sort of kind of stunned me into silence because it was such profound wisdom <laughs> and um what she was saying in a way uh well the my experience in the moment was like an instant feeling of tremendous relief uh -huh. and a <laughs> shift in focus because you know there is that feeling like if i just work hard enough you know, then of course I'll get that grant. Of course I'll get this thing. Of course, the you know, I, I will succeed in passing this bill. Of course, I, I just need to work hard enough. No, actually, sometimes the world is, is not choosing to meet you in the place that you want them to or that you want it to. And if you 
can let go of the belief that you can dictate to the world how it chooses to receive you, then you can actually invest more wholly and fully and joyously and completely um, in doing it because you, you can't control the outcome. You can't guarantee that if you work hard enough. So, you know, then you end up working really hard because it feels right to you, not because you think it's what the world must do, you know, and that's what I meant before of, well, the humanity may not choose to survive. We do have choices. Like the science is clear that if we do not reduce our total global greenhouse gas emissions by 50% in the next seven years, then we will not be able to prevent, you know, the, the predicted, some of the predicted worst, um, outcomes that that have been outlined in in some of the research and that's a choice uh, you know so yeah. i i am not going to stop doing this work just because i may see at some point we may not be choosing to walk a path that would you know minimize suffering um and guarantee uh species survival that i can't I can't string my happiness or my motivation or my drive on that. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes, it made sense. Uh, I mean, I guess I would just follow up by asking, uh, you know, now you're at Albany, this is the big leagues. I, I think there's a natural kind of, uh, dichotomy or dialectic between two views of of politics one where you know it's hard power and the other where it's the notion of of politics as serving the public interest you know as service and and civic responsibility which i'm hearing in 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 your underlying rationale and these are humanist values you know of course you i perceive you as a power with not power over kind of person fundamentally so how, so how do you Think about the notion of power these days, and has your view changed? Well, in my perspective, it's service, and I can't I can't dictate that to how everybody else perceives it. But in my mind, you have power. It's it's power is responsibility, and for me, responsibility is service. Um, but I'm also just by the way I was raised. Of course, it would make sense that I led the life that I have so far. But I'm also a trained public health researcher and in public health we um are studying everything on a population level not on an individual level you know so there may be decisions that you have to make government is about making decisions decisions for the whole population because any decision you make is going to affect the whole population and i don't know a single decision that's been made that uh that i can think of that has benefited a hundred a hundred percent of a population so then it's the question of, okay, where are my priorities? I'm going to make this decision. It is going to have potentially negative impacts on a part of the population um, or some people. How do I maximize the benefit and minimize the harm and accept the fact humbly, painfully, that um, I cannot with any, with any decision I make um, most likely do like zero harm um and that is mm -hmm. like fundamental to public health um 
anyway. You mean because you are studying a population. You're stepping back and looking at public health, right? So you're looking at what would what would improve public health? Well, through the history of time, um, some of the greatest public health actions have been creating, um, you know, water infrastructure, creating, um, you know, wastewater infrastructure so that we could improve sanitation. Um, you know, building code, a lot of it is specific to protecting uh, the majority of a population from um, from building collapse and the building code modifies based on, you know, what part of the world you're in and, you know, seismic activity and water quality and floodplain, right? Like all of those types of things are government actions that have sort of a public health to me um, mindset. And not everybody uh, appreciates the building code and some people, you know, it, it affects their livelihood, but, Mm-hmm. I need to, you know, in that public health mindset, yes, but it might affect negatively some people's livelihood, but it'll maximize health of the society, which impacts everybody. Um, so to me, having that mindset and recognizing that your job is to maximize benefit and minimize harm um, and accepting that sort of humility that you you are not allowed to not make decisions. Like I'm not not allowed to say, no, I'm not going to vote on this, this thing that came to the floor. I'm not allowed to abstain. Therefore, every decision I make is going to affect people both positively and negatively. You're not a That is a very, (laughs) well, it's a very philosophic, uh, you know, sort of roundabout definition of power. Uh But um, that is... In this context of government, yes, you have power. Are you using it for personal gain? Are you using it um, in what I believe government should be, which is recognizing that you're making decisions for an entire population, whether people agree with your philosophy, whether people agree with your politics, whether people you're still making decisions that will influence those people. And holding that in your mind's eye as you're making decisions is really uh the greatest i think most responsible use of this this power in this role yeah well what i'm hearing is you know that your your viewpoint and your training uh align you to a, a certain view you know this public health view very clear definition of the public good uh and you know increases both your motivation and the and the soundness of what you have to say when you speak from that frame well, I mean, I can say certainly that I try at least. And I also, it irks me <laughs> just viscerally when um, decisions are made based on anecdotes. Because I know from <laughs> a, a, an, a, a, you know, a, an epidemiological perspective, mm-hmm. you cannot say whether that anecdote is representative of the population norm, whether it's, it's, it's representative of any trend. It could be an outlier could be totally unrepresented and you were cherry picking <laughs> to uh you know to suit a, a personal uh um perspective or gain um i fight that a lot in in uh the criminal justice reform work that i do for example huh. we see a lot of tension going on in that we see it a lot in uh in the environmental discussions well you're going up you know against time honored traditions of rhetoric 
you know, of, I just, of technique, of technique. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Intentional. Yes. Uh, yes. Let me just let me just ask you. Uh, I have to blurt out the question now that you've spent an entire term in Albany. You know, what is it like dealing with your colleagues across the aisle? I mean, I mean, we're still in what seems to me to be an ongoing crisis of democracy or, or threat to democracy. You know, what do you understand about how how your fellow members think and operate? You know, I think it's very dangerous to other any group. Um, you know, and so for me, and I gave a speech on this actually earlier this year, cause I was so incensed about, um, yeah, about some of the things I was seeing on the national and global level. Uh, and we had a, a Holocaust remembrance day and I was talking about the, the danger of othering and the minute we find ourselves othering, it should be a really big flag. doesn't matter who you're othering. So to say, the people across the aisle is like still even if i don't agree with a lot of the philosophy a lot of the politics a lot of the perspectives um there is humanity there are humans quote unquote across the aisle um so there are if there are humans then there is just as much diversity in personalities there's just as much infighting among them as there is among democrats right like um, so for me, my work is to reach out and try to build human relationships with humans, uh, in the room, some Republicans, some Democrats, and where we agree, I will acknowledge and admit that we agree. And where we don't agree, I have made it very, very clear that I will debate passionately against their perspective, but I do not take it personally. Um, my job is to fight for what I believe in and what my constituents have sent me there to fight for um, and represent my my constituents to the best of my ability. And sometimes it's my constituents that I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. And it's because I may have gotten access to a lot more information. Well, I could do two things. I can just vote the way that I believe that, I, that is good for humanity based on the information I have and not say anything and just, just create tension or... I can try and take extra time that I can maybe try and find eked out between the minutes of this crazy job and educate, share, share the information that I have to the best of my ability. And um, so, you know, I would say it's on both sides. Um, there are certainly, no, there are certainly times where I, some of the mentality of uh, across the aisle, um, I have to take a deep breath and walk out of the room for my own mental health because it's so uh, it's so in contrast to what I believe in my heart is the the way to govern to serve the good of the most people. Um, and, and then, you know, I will, I will debate and I will argue and, uh, make, say my piece. And if I have to, uh, step out of the chamber and give myself five for my own mental health, I do that. Okay. Fully Does that, that in-depth answer your question? Yeah. Uh, I will follow up by asking about areas where you may have found, you know, across your committee assignments that you can 
connect fruitfully and work together, you know, and find shared notions of the common good. Here's two two examples that have been very refreshing. One is, so we have a system in the United States um, of EMS services, you know, ambulances, um, where uh, it has been uh, based on a model of volunteerism for the last hundred years. And like firefighters, so many of them are volunteers, um, emergency medical response people, their um, paramedics are more often um, paid, but not always. Um, and we have a society where wages have not kept up with the cost of living and the ability to, even if you wanted to volunteer, the ability to volunteer is less in reach for a lot of people. And yet there are still some people heroically that on top of everything else, um, you know, making money for the family, they're still volunteering being firefighters on yeah. their off time and mm-hmm. EMSs on their off time, paying for their own equipment, paying for their own training, um, and then working with outdated uh, equipment of, you know, the fire station because we are, haven't as a state invested or as, as a country invested in the capital improvements that are needed. For example, in Cortland, they have uh, a fire truck. Um, all fire trucks now, standard of the large ones, every fire station has to have at least one fire truck that has a ladder, right? Of course, because mm-hmm. houses, buildings are bigger now. Fire and ladder. It does not, right. It does not fit into their fire station <laughs> because their fire station is so old and it would cost 22 million to 20, I think about 22 million to update it. Something I'm fighting for. But but they need they need help. They need all fire departments and um, nonprofit EMSs, community EMS uh, EMSs. We overlook them until we need them. But they have been closing down across the state, mm-hmm. like a, a trend that has created a crisis. Where sometimes I, I there are some people in our district that have had a heart attack and called 911 and been told you're going to have to get yourself to the hospital. Mm. Very, very rare. But if you have a situation where five people have a crisis at the same time or seven people or the same number of ambulances that exist in this district or the same number of crises that happen all, to the, you know, all at the same time, there's only so many ambulances. You will hit a point where there aren't enough. And if they are closing down as a trend, then you have remaining uh, fire departments and EMS departments and, uh, you know, nonprofit, municipal nonprofits and for-profits that are increasing their service radius. So the one in the village of Trumansburg, for example, has a 250 miles square mile radius Uh service area to just give you a sense of how bad it's getting. Um, so I have been fighting for um, the state to step up and create a subsidy based on mileage and call volume for all um, municipal and nonprofit EMSs and to increase uh, Medicaid reimbursement rates that would support for-profit EMSs. Mm-hmm. And I have gotten huge bipartisan support in, in that effort that I'm doing. Um, interestingly, another area that I'm finding um, significant bipartisan support is uh, addressing um the uh, opioid epidemic and addressing substance use disorders um, that have been significantly on the rise, particularly during COVID, 
um, because you've got situations where you've got increased mental health crises um, because you've got significant increased social isolation, destabilization of people's financial situations, increased homelessness, increased housing insecurity, if not, you know, if they're not homeless, mm -hmm. on and on and on and on. And most people don't have great coverage for mental health services. Yeah. So you end up having more and more people who are self-medicating, whether it be alcohol, whether it be pain relief, whether it be, right? And so you were seeing an increase in substance use disorder. Lo and behold, scientifically, this is, this is, not, this is not rocket science. <laughs> you don't need to be a nutritional epidemiologist, right? <laughs> well, an epidemiologist, sure, fine. But no, you don't. You can just watch. But, but mm -hmm. it, as a trained public health person, I can see the interconnectivity mm -hmm. of, you know, what we are experiencing, not just because of COVID, these things were already crises prior to it. We have a, a total epidemic of mental health issues in schools from, from K, you know, kindergarten all the way through grad school. Crisis situation going on. Anyway, so there is, there is real bipartisan support um, for focusing on harm reduction, um, a harm reduction model where you meet people where they are, that it's not punitive because mm -hmm. punitive, um, a punitive system for, for treating substance use disorder literally doesn't work. And so many people on both sides of the quote unquote aisle have, have personal stories at right. this point of family members who have died of uh, like so many wake up calls where people have loved ones or know people who have loved ones that have like shocked them in their place and said, wait, 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 we can't stand on the side and judge and say people with substance use disorders just must be weak of spirit, weak of personality. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe this is an issue we really need to address. Thank goodness. Um, and so we're having honest conversation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The LGBTQI conversation is becoming more and more bipartisan. Um, you know, these things that are affecting our lives personally. So we're having conversations of how can we really address it, that we need to invest more in mental health, that we need to invest more in substance use disorder treatments that are harm reduction focused, that meet people where they are, that hold their hand through whatever process they want to go through, keep them alive. Because if someone's dead, you can't treat them. So, you know, let's get off of our high horse and do what works. Yeah. Um, so some really interesting productive, fascinating, uh, bipartisan conversations that I've had over the last two years. I'm not saying everybody across both and both sides of the, you know, the political spectrum, you know, across the political spectrum as if it's binary, um, has this perspective, but more and more refreshingly. No, that's a, that's a rich, a rich answer to the question I asked you and I thank you. Ah, uh, Assemblywoman, sure. I, I want to honor the, uh, the, the time limits that you said you had at the outset. So I'm thinking maybe. Oh, one goodness. More yes. <laughs> sure. Sure. Let me sure. Ask sure. One more question. Uh, last year you got married uh, at Mazatov for that. And, uh -huh. and, yes, and to you. a fellow who I, it just so happens to have known longer than you and uh, at, whom I admire just as much as you, who's been a, an amazing builder of community through the angle of, of directing juvenile theater in Tompkins County by the name of Joey Steenhagen. I just want to ask, uh, 
how you have been absorbing his good influence and what, <laughs> what would you say you have learned from him that has been applicable to your work? Oh, it's more honestly like having, I mean, he is one of the most stunning human, human beings I've ever met. I am so flippin' lucky. Um, he has given me a tremendous resolve in, you know, in the ways in which we're very parallel. So I'll start with that, which is that he, uh, he wants theater to be accessible. When we went on our first date, he said, you know, because I, when I realized who he was and some of the plays he directed, I put two and two together because there's several plays that I had seen that blew my mind. Mm -hmm. As you remember, I have a theater background from my high school and a little bit into college. And what he, the performances that he put on just so far exceeded any caliber that I had ever seen Mm -hmm. um, from students that I just, I was kind of blown away. And so I said that to him and he kind of waved me off, not in a disrespectful way. He just said, those are icing, I grow children. And I I was like totally smitten from that instant on. (laughs) But um, what, you know, understanding more and more to him, theater is absolute youth development. It's about, you know, children um, learning how to do teamwork, self-reflection, um, if they have a, a feeling, how to identify that feeling and then and, and then manifest that feeling for an actor. If they think that's the feeling that they have when a certain scene is happening, how would they manifest it in their body? How would they manifest it in their words? I mean, in their in how they're vocalizing. Um, that is a skill, uh, public speaking skills, how to feel confident in front of people in, you know, in public. I mean, there's endless skills that they're learning. And then he's very, very clear, um, you know, he'll say to them, uh, there's no way you could be the weirdest person in the world. So like, let's manifest your inner weirdo. You know, it's like one of the, the it's not exactly how he says it, but basically that's the essence of what he says. And that's really beautiful. Um, but because of it, he made uh, um, participation in his community youth theater company free for all students, 11 to 18, that's the age range. And uh, yeah, a phenomenally audacious move, because, of course, that took all the burden on him to fundraise the money um, from the community, from members, but from, you know, sponsors as well, writing grants. Uh, And very recently through the pandemic, he he made the decision to bookend his dream, what he's always wanted to do, because he had this belief true a true it's manifested that why would anyone ever know that they wanted to be in a play in the first place if they've never seen one and so the only way he could truly make theater accessible is if he made the performances free as well mind-blowing I don't know anyone else who's done that which means of course all of that burden on him and his uh team and the board as well to to fundraise but what has happened is Every single play since he did that, uh, you know, over the last year has had like thousands of people attend. Three, four thousand mm. people attend his plays. Um, the pragmatic challenge mounting theater in, in this particular time. <laughs> he is making it accessible to everyone, something very, very beautiful that like rises people's spirits. But what I've learned from him, though, is honestly, I, I wanted to have children. I was not able to. He has his own child, but he raises the community's children. And watching how he engages with them, how uh, 
uh, he inspires, how he treats them with not, you know, we we always say we should always treat children with respect. They're humans, just like everybody else. But like seeing it viscerally, watching someone do it in a way that inspires such um, joy in children ages 11 to 18 has been really, really stunning, really stunning, truly stunning. He creates a, a safe place, creates a safe place for our children. Well, both of you are my local heroes. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I got lucky. I'm, I'm very thankful. Thank you. What a what a rich conversation. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you, Assemblywoman. Always. Always. And uh, thank you for doing this great work. Thanks again to Assemblymember Anna Kellis and her staff for making the time and coordinating this interview. And for more information on the youth development organization known as Running to Places Theatre Company, go to runningtoplaces.org. They've got a podcast, too.